Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they couldn't stop. Goldie and Bendy's Adventures in Art. As always, I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times. But because in the modern world, everyone's in a hurry, when people want to speak to me, they just shout across the room, Oi, Waldy, over here, and I come running. And I'm joined on this podcast once again by a magnificent man of art. If art history was an Olympic sport, this man would win gold in the Baroque section. In the Renaissance section, he'd win silver. Unfortunately, in anything post-1850, he'd be knocked out in the first heat. But that doesn't stop him being Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. Nothing can stop that. Bendor, how are you? I'm very well indeed, Waldy. I wish I had your all-encompassing knowledge in gold place and every age of art, but you're real right. In fact, I give up about 1830s when I stopped the death of Sir Thomas Lawrence and I'm completely out of steam. Well, it never sounds like it. I just said that to be mean. But of course, the truth is that you do know a lot about pretty much every epoch there is, um, which is pretty useful in this particular instance, because today we're covering a very big topic and it's all about epochs. Um, So here's a question for you listeners to think about. Uh, What happened in art in around 1715? And why does that make this year so special? Ask yourselves that while we listen to this sensitive jingle. Dodgy, 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 anniversary. That's right, it's dodgy anniversary time, where we indulge in the time-honoured art world practice of finding an obscure date to celebrate and then making a big deal out of it. The peg today is that we're in the year 2020, right? And if you count back 305 years, you get to 1715, the year Louis XV ascended to the French throne, which in most people's books is roughly, very, very roughly, the start of the Rococo Age. Bendor, 305 years since the start of the Rococo. You couldn't ask for a dodgier anniversary than that, could you? No, you couldn't. And actually, I always thought that Rococo started a bit earlier than that. It's sort of, it's a bit blurry, isn't it? It's around kind of 1700. It merges from late Baroque into early 18th century. But it, I would say, actually, it's not the accession of Louis XV that matters. It's actually the death of Louis XIV and a reaction against the sort of austere, formal, thumping, authoritarian classicism that his reign stood for. What do you think about that? Well, I agree with you, it's blurred. Rococo comes from this word rocaille, which is a French word meaning uh, basically decoration to do with lots of shells and things. There's like those grottos you get in, in French stately homes with bits of shell and, and, and mollusks and fish and seaweed. And it's this over-the-top shapelessness of rocaille work. And it began as a decorative thing, didn't it? Mostly to do with furniture making, with silverware, with the decorative arts, and only kind of later became associated with art. So right from the beginning, it's blurry, agreed with you. And right from the beginning, there's a decorative emphasis, isn't there? Which is what I think most people hold against it, wouldn't you say? I mean, it's what people say. It's too decorative. It's too blurry. Yes. I mean, I hesitate to say this, but for me, it's, it's too bendy. And I think you're right to focus on its architectural origins, because 
I mean, as far as I can see, the history of architecture is, is a constant battle between straight lines and not straight ones, isn't it? I mean, we go from classic to Gothic, and then we can do the same in art, can't we? From the classical purity of the Renaissance to mannerism, and then counter-mannerism, and then Baroque, and then you get classicism, and then uh, Rococo, and then that's reacted against with neoclassicism. Um, but Rococo is the era where the bendy bits really get hold of everything, don't they? There's hardly a straight line in the place and symmetry goes out the window, and it's just a jumble of great curly chaos. And I'm a little bit OCD, and I, I like my straight lines, and I like my things in order and to be symmetrical. You're a round sort of fellow, Wildy. <laughs> you, you prefer, you, you like a bit of Rococo, don't you? Who are you calling round? How dare you, you, you thin man, you? <laughs> yes, I, do you know what? I used to have the same sort of doubts as I think you have. You know, I have these kind of Presbyterian off-putting thoughts about what Rococo stood for. It felt very foreign, you know, it's the sort of thing the French got up to and the Germans. Um, and, and you walk into Rococo churches and it doesn't seem to speak the language of British thinking, if you like. So I used to hold it against it. But my wife is actually Japanese and, and so she doesn't have any of those issues. And she's the one that got me interested in things like Meissen porcelain and Venetian chandeliers. And to be honest, from a position of standing still, when I didn't like any of that, I have now come around to a position of loving it, absolutely adoring it. It seems to be such a happy art, basically, and yes. such a skillful thing. There are few pleasures in art more simply joyous than walking into a German Rococo church of about 1760 or something, designed by Balthasar Neumann. And the sky is full of pale blues and pinks and there's cherubs floating about everywhere and this glorious stucco work that seems to be attacking the solidity of the building. And it all just feels so ethereal and pleasant and beautiful. And there's a place for that. Now, I'm not saying it's the only way we should make art, but I am saying that when you get into it, first of all, it becomes very pleasing. And then, well, actually, it becomes rather addictive, Bendor. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean, but I think it's because I come from a sort of good English Protestant stock on one side and, and Calvinist Swiss peasantry on the other. And I, I walk into those German churches. I know the ones you mean in, in Bavaria and Austria. And they're beautiful on one level, but I find them so, so false and so full of frippery and, and levity. And I like my religion to be a little bit sort of pounded into me um, in that rather... <laughs> in that rather miserable Presbyterian way. So I don't like it in a religious setting. I like some of the, you know, the, the German Rococo palaces. I can understand some of those. A little bit like, for example, the, the Würzburg residence. That's also uh, near Munich in Bavaria, isn't it? Although, the again, the OCD person in me does worry about all the dusting on that stucco um, protruding everywhere. I, I prefer my Rococo, I prefer English, British Rococo, because when we do it over here, it's a bit more restrained, isn't it? It's completely restrained. I mean, there is no Rococo in the English Rococo. See, I say that as a jest, but actually one of the great things about the Rococo is that it is, in fact, a very broad church. Mm. So if you look at the art of the 18th century, which is basically what we're talking about, yeah. okay, on the one hand, you have these Bavarian churches, which I think are glorious and you don't like. And then you have, you know, French Louis Quinze furniture and those beautiful bits of silverware and all that, which also you don't like. And then you have Meissen porcelain in Germany, which um, is, again, thrillingly, brilliantly made. But again, you don't like that. But 
here in, in England, we have Hogarth working away at exactly these times. You know, in Spain, a little bit later, Goya pops up. We've got Stubbs working here. It is a broad church, and any art historian really has their work cut out trying to find a middle ground through it, you know, or trying to find a straight line that goes through the Rococo, because there isn't one. Yeah. Um, there are lots of avenues. It's, it's more like a piece of coral. It goes left, it goes right, it goes back, it goes forwards. And, and that's rather thrilling, because I actually also think the great thing about the Rococo is you're always discovering new people and new wonderful bits of art. Yeah. But do you really like all, you know, for example, a Boucher painting? Full of sort of great big. Um... Well, no, Boucher's a bad word. I mean, no, no, Boucher's <laughs> taking everything too far. But that's because he's so decadent um, and insincere and ghastly. Mm. I think that end of it, where the art is supposed to be very sensuous, but actually it's just dirty old men, yeah. basically. It's repellent, isn't it? Yeah. That aspect of it is the one bit of it that I think is really regrettable. Yeah. But if you look a little bit earlier at Votto, you know, Votto, brilliant yes. artist who painted that same period really. And, and you, know, you look at a Votto and it shimmers and the silks are hardly there and it's very ethereal, but it's also got a darkness to it. So a sense that these pleasures are short lived and they're gonna go quickly. You know, like that painting of, of Gilles, the Piero that we did last week. So um, there's a depth to some aspects of the Rococo. In fact, I'd say most aspects of it, but with Boucher, no, no, absolutely not. I mean, he's the devil, you know, he's the devil incarnate in, mm -hmm. and his art is ghastly. I agree with you there. Yes, but that kind of uh, rather desperate, as you say, dirty old man sensuousness, that, that infects a lot of Rococo French painting, doesn't it? I mean, if you think of Fragonard's The Swing, where uh, some poor young person is being pushed on a swing through the air so that some old lech underneath the swing can look up her dress and find out that she's not wearing any pants. Um, and I, offer, I, I feel slightly sorry for Watto because I think one of the greatest draftsmen who ever lived, one of the greatest painters who ever lived, but slightly compelled by the tastes of the time to do endless pictures of people floating about in fancy dress eating cake. And I, I feel sometimes he was yearning to be a little bit more serious and profound than that. But well, yes, you see, with Votto, I think you're wrong. I think, I think they are serious and profound because although they are people wafting about listening to music and eating cake, um, they're always underpinned by a sense that at any minute it could all go. They're like a candle flickering in the wind. At any minute it could be blown out. Now that's the feeling of the people in, in Votto paintings. It's mm. a very Rococo mood, the sense of it all being ready to transpire very quickly. So I don't mind any of that. And, and I mean, of course, there's, there's too much sensuality and sex and all that stuff in it. I mean, Casanova's a Rococo figure, isn't he? Let's face yes. it, Venice and the Rococo. Yeah. But if you go to Venice, which is in many ways the archetypal Rococo experience, and you go somewhere like the Carrazonico, which is the Museum of 18th Century Art, and you look up at some of those chandeliers they have in there, the Murano glass chandeliers that look like flowers, you know, tulips that have somehow sprung up on the ceiling. And they're all done with glass and they're so brilliantly made, so delicate. I mean, it's just an aesthetic thrill. However Presbyterian you are, you would be thrilled, I tell you, by the beauty of a Murano glass chandelier at the height of the Venetian Rococo. Yes, I could certainly. I mean, it's the high point of the most extraordinary form of craft, isn't it? Where uh, form absolutely obliterates anything to do with function. And that's, that's marvellous to look at. Again, I come back to my liking for some form of order um, and formality. And that, that's why I like um, the brief moment that we can describe as English Rococo. For example, if you were to look at a, a Thomas Chippendale book of 
furniture pattern drawings you know some of his chimney pieces for example from the 1760s they're good symmetrical chimney pieces but they've got just the right amount of rococo shell work to give them a little bit of decorative oomph so that's what i like and, at, and that moment where artists like thomas gainsborough who who was taught for a brief while by a french rococo artist one of the one of the best work in england hubert gravelo and he takes that lightness of touch and that's that's a really beneficial injection into british art isn't it because goodness we had been rather uh, wading in the mire in the early 18th century the in all these rather stodgy portraits by people like Godfrey Neller. And we, we definitely needed in British art a little bit of French Rococo breath of life. Agreed. Totally agree with you. Chippendale can do no wrong. Of course, Gainsborough, absolute genius. And you are so right, Bendor. What made him special was the fact that he's very un-English. You know, you only have to compare him with Reynolds at the time to feel this lightness of touch, this French lightness of touch, enlivening his art. It's like someone going out into the open air at last and feeling that they're filling their lungs with fresh air there's a breathiness to it mm. and even hogarth you see look at hogarth's portraits and he was the classic banger on about how bad french influence was on on british art yet if you look at his portraits you know they breathe a certain light rococo thing as well they're they're, they're enlivened by the spirit of the times and you see the rococo in its undiluted form let's say it's the court of, of louis the 15th let's say it's madame de pompadour and boucher that is hardcore rococo that even i have some trouble with that but as an influence as a breath that went out into the world and loosened up art everywhere it landed you know it did great things and, and that's how i think we should take it and Mostly I'm against this idea that the Rococo was always frivolous and always rubbishy, because it wasn't. It could do profundity um, and it could certainly do freshness. And those are qualities that I value. Yes. And of course, when we get into the world of music, then really that period can do no wrong, can it? I mean, from, from Bach to Haydn to Mozart, and the list of gloriousness goes on and on. Exactly. And speaking of the world of music, I mean, we're actually going to move on to the next section of the podcast, uh, Bendor. But um, we've actually got Mozart in to, to do the, the next jingle. And <laughs> um, that's how much we love the, uh, the Rococo. So here we go. We're moving on to the next section of the programme. You might find a pair of wellies could be useful. The introductory jingle by Mozart. Bendor Kramer had a farm. E-I-E-I-O Beautifully written piece of music, Baldi. Does that make me the Salieri in this relationship? The fact that you write the jingles and I just sit here being miserable about things. <laughs> okay, it wasn't really by Mozart, but um, it could have been, couldn't it? Let's face it. Um, but yes, welcome indeed to Bendor Grosvenor's Farm, where we delve into the animal kingdom and its impact on art. And just to remind you, everything we talk about, all the pictures, everything we mention, it's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at zczfilms.com. It's a goldmine of information, so pop over there and have a look at what we're talking about. Now, you may remember in the last podcast, we tackled the fascinating subject of fish in art. And I was gobsmacked, yes, gobsmacked, to hear my co-host, Hugh Bendy, express the opinion that fish pictures are boring and that what you need to enliven them is a cat. You actually said that. The fish picture needs a cat. Well, anyway, that outrageous suggestion has prompted us to look indeed more closely at cats in art. And as always, we've democratically selected the five best felines we could think of in art. 
and Bendor, we've ranked them according to quality and impact. I mean, I think we disagree about the list, so I'm going to kick off with what I think should be at number five. The uh, least interesting of these pictures of cats is by Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and it's a page of cat drawings from Windsor Castle, the Royal Collection. Um, I'm going to pass it over to you to describe to me, and then I'm going to tell you why I don't think it should be any higher up the list. Hang on. Number five on my list. I've got this on number one. Le Leonardo da Vinci in fifth place. Goodness me. This, and particularly when we're talking about a drawing in the Royal Collection, um, which has, I haven't counted them actually, but probably about 15 beautiful cat drawings on there. And uh, we've got cats sleeping, cats fighting, cats itching, cats washing. Uh, they're doing all sorts of things. They're beautifully rendered, don't you think? Uh, does that not move you? Are you not a cat person? Is that what we're going to discover? You don't like cats? Because you could only not like this drawing if you don't like cats. I'm not a cat person, that's mm. true. Uh, but that isn't what I'm holding against this drawing. I'm holding against it the fact that it's a drawing and it's a preparatory drawing. And although it shows off these great skills that Leonardo da Vinci had, no one's arguing with that. And you see him trying to capture the essence of a cat in various ways, um, sleeping, standing, jumping about, chasing its own tail, lots of different cats doing lots of things in motion. What it adds up to is, is a sketch pad with cats on it. And to me, that doesn't quite rank with the other cats we've got coming up in the list. So it's really the fact that as a drawing with many cats, it just didn't quite feel as important, I suppose, as some of the other ones we've got. Mm. Oh, well. I, did, I think it's such a fascinating insight into Leonardo's mind. You, you probably uh, weren't able to briefly um, translate and transcribe the inscription at the bottom there, which I think is written in Leonardo's uh, mirror script. Um, it says, of flexion and extension, this animal species, of which the lion is the prince because of its spinal column, which is flexible. And it was all part of a series of animal studies. He did really late in his life. This is from about 1517. Of course, he died in 1519. And that's, that's what I love about Leonardo. He's always learning. He's always exploring. And he was planning to um, write a treatise where he um, examined the movements of animals like this. And he'd draw a direct comparison to, uh, to humans because although he said that animals have four feet, so likewise in its infancy, man crawls on all fours. So it's, it's quite interesting when you look very closely at some of these cat drawings, some of the faces are quite um, human-like, aren't they? They've been anthropomorphized, if that's the word. But it's right. not just cats, there's a couple of lions on there as well. And is, isn't that a dragon in the middle? Isn't that a dragon? Yes, I think he, Leonardo, of course, had a pet dragon along with his pet cats. So that's there too. <laughs> What's he trying to do here? Is he just trying to prepare cats for a painting he has in mind? Is this how we should read this? Or is it an exploration of the way the cat moves just for the sake of it? Or is he trying to find a way to draw a dragon that involves studying the way cats move? I'm baffled a little bit by what the purpose of this sheet of drawings is. Well, he's just, it's an insight into one of the greatest geniuses who ever lived. He saw a cat on the floor. I'm sure it's his own pet cat. And he thought, I shall make some drawings. He did actually do many studies many years earlier for um, a picture, which I don't think he ever painted, uh, a Madonna of the cats, because there is this legend in religious <laughs> art that at the same time as uh, the birth of Christ in the stable, um, a cat gave birth to 12 kittens. So, you know, Jesus was a cat man too. There you are, Bendy. I'm glad you like it. I mean, I'm not saying it's a, in any way a second-rank work of art or anything like that. It's just not as interesting as the things we've got coming up. I mean, it's, it's not as interesting, is it, as, for example, this picture of Kitty Fisher that uh, you also put on the list. I mean, what a fascinating thing that is at number four on the cat list. Is that number... Oh, oh I did have that at number two. 
Yes, a picture by Nathaniel Hone, who's, you know, he's he's a, a respectable British artist. He's definitely not in the first rank, but I think actually this is his masterpiece. And we do have a problem in art history, don't we, Wildy, where anything vaguely amusing we tend to not take very seriously. Would you agree with me on that? I would agree with you on that. And, uh, and piety always seems to outrank comedy, which I don't agree with at all, because I think comedy is one of the great artistic forces. And this painting is one of the great um, artistic gags, um, I think, produced in Britain in the 18th century. So the subject is um, a famous celebrity of her age, a courtesan. Uh, she was called Kitty Fisher. And it's a fairly you know, average portrait of, uh, of an 18th century lady. But look to your bottom uh, right, and there is the most beautifully painted glass bowl of goldfish um, with a cat uh, trying desperately to hop in and catch one of the fish for its lunch. And the cat is portrayed really marvellously, clinging on desperately, uh, and it can't quite figure out how to get in. And the goldfish are looking at it uh, mockingly because they know that they're safe in there. And if you look very closely on the glass, you'll see a reflection of a window, which is beautifully painted. Uh, and there are lots of faces at the window, and they are the crowd uh, looking in at Kitty Fisher, who lived her life in the full glare of mid-18th century uh, British uh, publicity. In the 1990s, I think we would have called her an it girl. I'm not sure what we would call her today. She would be an influencer on Instagram. Um, but this is, this is a beautiful picture. And of course, the pun uh, with a cat, Kitty Fisher for the sitter, Kitty Fisher. Fascinating. I hadn't noticed, well, I noticed the window, but I hadn't seen before what it actually represents. That's right. It's the people looking into her room, looking at her, isn't it? Fascinating. Kitty Fisher. I know Kitty Fisher from that nursery rhyme. Um, Lucy Lockett lost the locket. Kitty Fisher found it. They taught me that when I was at primary school. Oh, I never heard that. That's lovely. Yeah, Lucy Lockett lost the locket. Kitty Fisher found it. But Kitty Fisher was this famous courtesan as you say and famous for being famous one of the first people about whom that can be said right mm. the pun is great it's hilarious the renaissance used to do this as well didn't they i mean they used to put things in little accoutrements which somehow reflected or referred you to the name of the sitter but i mean this is so wonderfully clunky we're back in the world of the cats that you talked about last week with um, Horace Walpole's cat getting drowned trying to catch a goldfish by dropping into the goldfish bowl. This seems to be the same scene. The cat has got its paw in there trying to catch a goldfish. So it's fishing and it's a cat, so it's a kitty and she's Kitty Fisher. I mean, it's brilliant, clunky, Rococo thinking. <laughs> uh, and I must say, she's gorgeous, isn't she? I mean, she was the great courtesan of the times, wasn't she? And, and Casanova, I think, met her as well. I seem to remember reading Casanova going on about Kitty Fisher and her beauty. And she has got something about her. I have to give her that, you know. Um, it's this weird thing, isn't it, that just like today, the camera loves certain people. Mm. And, it, and it's a strange quality that people have. I mean, for example, the camera loves me. So when I go on the camera, I look great. When you go on the camera, it's not quite the same thing, is it? You know, the, the chemistry is different. The camera, camera has no choice but to love you, because you, you fill quite a lot of the frame sometimes. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. But I mean, if you met someone like Kate Moss, Kate Moss is a good example. You meet Kate Moss in real life, and she just looks ordinary, and, and honestly, you could pass her in the street, and you would not go, wow. But as soon as the camera turns on her, yeah. something happens. There's chemistry between the image and, and the person. And I think Kitty Fisher had the same thing because there's a portrait of her as well, isn't there, by Reynolds. And mm. in all of them, there's just something about the, the dynamics of her face, you know, the, the makeup of her physiognomy that makes her alluring. And 
it's evidence of the importance of the image, isn't it? Of how the way you look can do everything for you in life. I mean, you know, you can be a poor whatever, but if you look a certain way, you can become Britain's greatest courtesan, which is what happened to her. So it's both about the emptiness of the Rococo again, but also a lesson that carries all the way through time, I think. Fascinating picture. Love it. Oh, I'm very glad to hear you like it. And um, relegating to fourth place, you're going to have to you're going to have to pull out all the stops to put things in a higher rank than that painting. I think <laughs> I only put would only end up in fourth on a kind of countdown, really, because I didn't want to put the one that's at number three at number four because that would have been playing into your hands. I thought so. Um, I have to say I fiddled with the list a bit because um, number three is Richard Billingham photograph from a series called Ray's Laugh that he did in the 1990s. And it's a decrepit scene of an old bloke slumped on a living room chair and you're not quite sure what's happening to him. And it's a squalid room that he's sitting in. And everything is a bit weird, but the weirdest thing of all is that flying through the air is a cat, a big white cat right in the middle of the picture. And um, I mean, do you know anything about Richard Billingham? Do, do you know this series of works, Bendor? Uh, absolutely not. As you, as you mentioned earlier, I stopped in 1830, so I'm all ignorance. Well, he popped up in the mid-90s as a, suddenly a very fashionable British artist. So he was a bit later than the Brit artists. And he produced this one brilliant series of works called Ray's Laugh. And it turned out that Ray was his dad, a guy called Ray, who's the guy in the picture, who was an alcoholic. And they lived in this squalid house in the north. And Ray apparently used to keep a bucket of homemade beer next to his bed and wake up in the morning and gulp it down so it was a kind of squalid life and a very very different life from the life that most art students were living at the time mm -hmm. so Richard Benningham was trying almost um, to do some reverse psychology here you know by fessing up about the squalor of his life the squalor of his dad the situation that he grew up in he was trying to somehow take the poison out of his past and he came up with this extraordinary body of work which of course yeah, for us outsiders looking in on this, I and mean, you can't help but think, oh my God, the poor guy growing up like this with this alcoholic father and this terrible circumstance. And yet it isn't that terrible in the work itself because I mean, he calls it Ray's laugh. And it, now that's a pun, isn't it? And there's a sense of the ridiculousness of it all as well as the horror of it. And the best image of all of them, I think, is this scene of the cat being thrown across the room by the dad, which obviously is both terrible and tragic but at the same time, in this sequence, or in this instance, rather comic, the cat's still got its eyes open, you know it's going to land all right. Um, and it's this mixture of squalor and personal confession and an insight into a world that we can only shudder about, I suppose. All, all of that goes into it, and it makes this such an interesting image, I think, Bendor. So Ray is having a laugh by throwing the cat in the air. When he's no, he's dead. drunk. We don't know. We don't know. Mm -hmm. I and mean, Ray's Laugh is the name of the book. Okay, right. so the book, all of it was called Ray's Laugh. So it's all about the father and his alcoholism. But in this particular instance, he's thrown the cat in a tragic, I mean, a dark and horrible moment. He's mm -hmm. thrown it in the air as part of his alcoholic behaviour. So I don't think he's having a laugh at the cat as such. But of course, it's a horrible act. No question about it. A horrible act. And the alcoholism is a, is a horrible way to lead your life. Uh, but as I said, somehow by bringing it out in the open, by making people like you and me who never see this kind of stuff in our lives, by making us face up to what happens in some dark corners of Britain and the modern world, that's important. And the cat's role here is to be the focus of that revelation. I suppose so. Although as a cat lover, my sympathy was almost entirely with the cat here. Yeah. 
Well, this is it, isn't it? This is what's interesting about them. So in all the pictures that we've got in this list, perhaps with the exception of the Leonardo, the cat is a kind of adjunct. It's in there, but the painting isn't specifically about the cat. It so happens that the cat's there as a symbol to represent something. And what they represent is very slippery. Sometimes they're nice creatures and they're about good things. Sometimes they're not. They're about malice or something else. And it's as if they're a very handy and flexible as a symbol cat. They can be used all over the place in different ways. I mean, if you look, for example, at what I think is our number two in the list, which is this fantastic Frida Kahlo self-portrait. Most people will know the image, even if they don't know the title, which is self-portrait with thorn necklace and hummingbird. A rather confusing title, because actually it should be called self-portrait with a monkey and a cat, because there is Frida Kahlo with a monkey on one of her shoulders uh, and a cat, a black cat on the other. And the cat's job in this picture, the Frida Kahlo self-portrait, which is wonderful, by the way, um, is obviously to represent a kind of wildness in her. Um, it's there, it's a black cat, it could be a black panther, there's a jungle scene behind her with lots of leaves. And it's to represent that side of Frida Kahlo, isn't it? The, the woman you can't tame, this free spirit from Mexico. So here's the cat representing that dark, smouldering jungle power, if you like. Whereas in the Kitty Fisher, it's something else, isn't it? So it's sort of a pun on her name, that's its job there. And in the Richard Billingham, it's there as a kind of extraordinary centre to this dark story of Richard Billingham's dad. So the very adaptable cats, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yes. And actually, I've got my... Um... One of the books I consult regularly is uh, George Ferguson's Signs and Symbols in Christian Art. You must have this on your bookshelves there, Wildy. And I looked up cat this morning, um, and it says here, the cat, because of its habits, was taken as a symbol of laziness and lust. Well, I think that's a bit unkind, but I think you put your finger on it earlier, that actually our view of cats as lovable, cuddly things is, is an anomaly, isn't it? Cats in history have been viewed for uh, many different reasons. Yes, uh, they, you know, they weren't domesticated. Um, is, is the cat here in the Frida Kahlo, is that supposed to be a contrast with the monkey? I don't think it's supposed to be a contrast with it. I think it's um, brother in arms. Oh. I mean, the monkey represents the wildness and so does the cat. But the monkeys are more to do with ingenuity and proto-humanity, whereas cats are just wilder. I mean, this actual cat in the picture is a fantastic beast of the jungle, isn't it? It's got mm. these sort of dark, fierce eyes. It's standing there alert on her shoulder. I mean, it's frightening. It's a black cat, but it's not like an English black cat that stands for good luck. This is a black cat that you wouldn't want to meet on a dark night because it looks like it would rip you to bits, doesn't it? I thought a black cat was bad luck, actually. Is that... Isn't it good luck to see a black cat crossing the road oh, in front of you? I think that just reflects your and my differing uh, world outlooks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to check this out. That's like the donkey and the mule, where, by the way, it turned out I was right. It was a donkey, not a mule. But uh, OK, we're going to look into the black cat conundrum as well and see, is a black cat crossing the road good luck or bad? I thought it was good, but hey, maybe I'm just an optimist. Anyway, Frida Kahlo, fantastic picture. I'm sure we're agreed on that. Mm. It takes us to the number one in uh, my list, although I believe um, it may not be number one in your list. Um, and that is Manet's famous, provocative, controversial painting called Olympia which caused a huge fuss at the Paris Salon in 1865 and has been causing fuss ever since, really. Fantastic picture, don't you think, Bendor? Indeed. And I once went to an exhibition in Venice where it was hanging next to uh, Titian's um, Venus of Urbino, of course, the painting that inspired Manet. So that was, what a treat that was to see them side by side. Which I, And I think it was the first time they'd been hung together for 
hundreds of years. Um, so that was quite a moment. I enjoyed that. Yeah. And in the Titian, which, as you say, was the inspiration for it originally, the Venus uh, is lying there naked and at the bottom of her bed, there's a dog. Hmm. Manet's update of it, he swaps the dog for a cat and a black cat at that as well, with its tail sticking straight up in the air. Um, representing, well, I think we can move on to what it's going to represent in a minute, but um, let's just, just carry on with describing the picture perhaps for us a bit more, Bendor. Well, we have um, Olympia uh, lying naked on a pristine white uh, bed. Uh, she's looking directly at us as the viewer, and to her left, on the right of the painting, uh, is a black servant who is offering her a bunch of flowers, which she appears to be disdaining. And at the foot of the bed is a black cat, which um, is, this is a great painting, no doubt, but this is a terrible painting of a cat. It looks like one of those sort of uh, stuffed things you get in the you know, old antique taxidermy, slightly mangy um, and wonky eyes. It, it's, it's really a, a shockingly badly painted cat. Yeah, it's not the most realistic of cats, but I think it is meant to be symbolic. I do think so. <laughs> the reason it was so scandalous, this painting, was because quite clearly Olympia is a prostitute, right? And quite clearly you, that is to say the person looking at this picture, are therefore probably being cast as her client. Mm -hmm. So imagine in the Paris Salon of 1865, all these posh blokes with top hats, the, the French bourgeois, wander through the salon. They come across this picture of a woman who is transparently a prostitute. She's no Venus, she's Olympia, mm -hmm. um, which was the sort of name that apparently prostitutes liked to have at that time. They like to take these Greek names. It's a bit like people in, in politics these days like to call themselves Allegra or, or Dido or something. Well, in 19th century Paris, prostitutes would like to call themselves Olympia, or Artemisia, these posh-sounding classical names. So they knew immediately once it was called Olympia, they knew she was a prostitute. Mm -hmm. She's got this black thing around her neck, which also suggests that. And because the, the maid is bringing in some flowers, the idea is that you've sent the flowers ahead of yourself, as it were. They're arriving at the same time as you. So what really got people about this picture was two things. One, that the subject was the indecent subject of a woman of the night. And, and the second thing was that the picture accused you of being her client there and then. So it's a sort of action painting and, and wonderfully effective. And of course, that's where the cat comes in, right, Bendor? Absolutely. I was looking at a photograph of this painting in, in high resolution in advance of talking about it on the podcast, Wendy. And I tried to, you know, consciously look at these paintings with, uh, for want of a better term, modern eyes, because I think in the past, you know, uh, male white art lovers like me would look at this picture and go, well, there's, there's a prostitute and it's all about her. But what I was struck by was the, the role of the black servant uh, on the black background and the fact that she's being ignored. Uh, and I wonder if, it's, if the cat is black for a similar reason, because am I misreading this? Is the painting very obviously about good and bad? And is that reflected in white and black? And do we have to confront um, the, the possible racial aspect of this? Or am I, or am I, am I worrying unnecessarily about it? Oh, well, I think there certainly is a racial aspect. Uh, um, I've always understood it as as a sort of denigration of the maid figure. I mean, because, mm. as you say, people looking at this picture go on and on about the, uh, we've just done it, haven't we, mm. um, about the, the white Olympia lying gorgeously on the bed, and they forget that her maid is a woman of colour and that she's coming in. And unfortunately, that was the kind of work that you had in those days if you were a, a black arrival in Paris. But I don't think there is any 
sinister underpinning to that in terms of the relationship to the cat. Right. Um, I think the cat is quite specifically, I mean, cats are, let me throw the word pussy at you. Cats are in pretty much every language um, loaded with sexual connotations. And the French word chat, well, you know, do you need me to translate that for you as well? It has the same slang connotation right. uh, in French as pussy does in English. Okay. And the fact that it's sticking its tail right up like that, and it's on its toes, it's an erect cat, isn't it? And it's not just me saying this, this was said at the time as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the cat's role in this is to make slightly comic, if you like, um, and very deliberate reference to the sexual shenanigans that are going on here. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a representation of that lust and erection and what have you. But I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, every word I'm saying here makes me feel nervous because I don't know what <laughs> listeners are going to think of me. But it, it's a loaded, loaded cat. Um, and it, without it, the picture wouldn't have quite that same disturbing sense that it does have. Yes. No, I think you've explained it well. I just thought it was interesting, you know, read, trying to read up about the painting. You know, the, the black servant is completely ignored in all the art history about it, at least the, the art history I'm familiar with. Um, and I think it's about time we, we all look at these things afresh. And I'm ashamed to say that when I saw the painting um, with the Venus of Urbino by Titian, I sort of, I looked at it in that very traditional fashion and I didn't really pay much attention to, um, to, to the role of the servant and, and how her depiction reflected the attitudes of the times. But anyway, I think I think it's fasc no less fascinating for that. And perhaps we should come back to this this weighty topic another day. I can see that the cat plays a defining role here, but I think it's a very badly painted cat. And I think it's a, a travesty that we've got the most beautifully rendered cats in art by no less than Leonardo da Vinci, <laughs> the bottom artist and Manet's rather plodding pussy is at the top. Hand on heart, I can't really disagree with you about the quality of the feline representation. Um, yes, of course it's true that Leonardo da Vinci's cats look much more like cats than Manet's symbolic, comic, and somewhat erect cat. So yes, I'm, I'm going to do a first here. I'm going to reverse my list. You're quite right. Leonardo da Vinci should be number one, and Manet should be number five. So let's leave it at that. Quite enough cat talk for now, I would have thought. Uh, it's time to move on to less problematic territory, less problematic for me anyway. It's that moment when we really enjoy the freedom of the museum without walls. On the wall. Yes, it's on the wall. And while that wonderful jingle was playing, composed once again by Mozart, <laughs> Taya, who puts these programs together for us, had a quick look at the uh, encyclopedia to work out what it is about cats, black cats, lucky or not lucky. And she found out that black cats are considered fortunate and lucky in Britain, in Ireland, Japan, those kinds of countries. But that in other countries in Europe, separatist countries, they are considered omens of bad luck. So in a way, we're both right, except that I'm speaking more for the nation we're in at the moment, and you're speaking more for some sort of breakaway Scottish culture, which is very <laughs> pertinent, because I believe your on-the-wall choice has some of those implications too, Bendor, doesn't it? This is a portrait of Prince Charles Edward Stuart, best known in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie, uh, painted by a French artist called Laurent Pechot in 1770. And I should say straight away that I haven't chosen it for its artistic merit. Uh, I, Pechot was a, a perfectly decent artist, but certainly not a great one. It's in a private collection. It's in a house called Stamford Hall in Nottinghamshire. 
And the reason I wanted to just celebrate Bonnie Prince Charlie at the moment is that uh, he was born uh, 300 years ago this year. So it's an auspicious, uh, genuinely marvellous anniversary for us to celebrate in this podcast. And it's also the 275th anniversary this year of his 1745 uprising, which was the last rebellion on British soil. And for anybody who's not a Jacobite or a Stuart fan, just a little bit of quick history, Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, was the basically the last major claimant of the Stuart dynasty to the thrones of Scotland and England. The Stuarts had been kicked out by um, under the reign of James II in the so-called Glorious Revolution and replaced by William of Orange. Um, and, the, and the Stuart dynasty, led by uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie in 1745, made repeated uh, but failed attempts to reclaim the crown. And now, the reason I like uh, this portrait of him is if you look on the table there, Waldy, in the portrait, what, what do you see? It's a crown, isn't it? Oh, it's a very specific is, crown. Is it the crown of Scotland and England? Well, it's a closed crown, which means that he's not here Bonnie Prince Charlie, but he's staking his claim to be King Charles, King Charles III. So this is painted after his father died, uh, James III. And the reason this, this is a unique portrait of him, the Jacobites relied very heavily on portraiture to keep their cause alive in the, in the hearts and minds. But this is the only portrait of Charles in which he's shown claiming to be king. And it's painted, as I said, in 1770, some years after his failed rebellion in 1745. And it shows him keeping the flame alive. Uh, and again, just beneath the crown, you can actually see a battle scene, which I think is meant to be Preston Pans, 275 years ago, uh, his last great victory, Charles's last great victory. And I think it's rather touching. And, and the reason the Bonnie Prince doesn't look very bonny here, he looks a bit pie-eyed. And that's because at this time he was wandering uh, Europe incognito and very frequently worse the way of the drink as he tried to uh, come to terms with his his rather frustrated role in life and his defeat and i, I would like to have this painting in my museum because uh, bonnie prince charlie is a very important person in my life well did you know this i do know that i seem to remember reading a newspaper article recently that mentioned you and bonnie prince charlie well i think maybe you need to tell us about this well it's uh, it's thanks to him i found another portrait of him by um, Alan Ramsey a few years ago, and I made a television programme uh, about it, and the director of that programme, Ishbel, uh, she and I got married. So it's thanks to Bonnie <laughs> Prince Charlie that, uh, that I met my wife and now live in Scotland. So, Oh, I um, didn't know that. that... Congratulations, Bonnie <laughs> Prince Charlie, Bonnie Prince Bendor. So I, I need to have him on my walls here so I can, I can pay daily homage and say, thank you, Charlie. Well, the, I don't know much about Bonnie Prince Charlie and indeed these Scottish wars of succession. I, mean, I do have a sense of this poor man wandering around Europe, desperately trying to get his kingdom back. And I also know that underpinning it all were religious reasons that go right up my street, because, of course, the whole thing about James II, his grandfather, was that he was a Catholic, wasn't he? And there was a, a move afoot to try and bring Catholicism back onto the uh, English throne. And that's, of course, what everybody turned against. But the other thing is, of course, that his grandfather's wife, right, James II's wife, was Polish, wasn't she? Maria Sobieska, because there's a portrait of her in the Scottish National Gallery. And she was the daughter of the Polish king, Jan Sobieski, who's the guy who fought the Turks at the Battle of Vienna. Oh. So, you know, we are basically Poland and Scotland, are two nations uh, joined by this <laughs> wonderful, thrilling past well, of ours. Yes. We hold hands across the border, don't we, Bendor? Yes, I had not thought to mention that, but actually, so Bonnie Prince Charlie's mother was Polish. 
Uh, she was the was Sobieska, it her mother? Yes. Yeah, Sobieska princess. And a rather tragic figure. She, she did not enjoy her marriage into the Stuart family and um, suffered from mental illness, I think, partly as a result, and ended up in a convent, which is what they tended to do to the poor old consuls who didn't really enjoy being married to some stuffy old English pretender. Uh, mm. They used to shut them away in a, in a convent somewhere. My life was led the other way around, really. I began with the convent, or at least the Polish boarding school, where I had all that thrown down me. And then I only went insane later. So it was a sort of clear <laughs> reversal of that situation. Maybe that's what happens when the, the Scottish and the Polish mix. And it's not a very good painting, but it is a fascinating story. And I do think that the whole Bonnie Prince Charlie tale on this heroic and rather ridiculous attempt to invade England and the Battle of Culloden and all that does make English history of that period so much more interesting. Mm. But I've gone beyond your border, way beyond your border, Bendy. I've gone beyond 1850 uh, in my uh, choice of On the Wall. And in fact, not only that, I've, I've gone to a show that I saw last week, actually. I went to Tate Britain to see an exhibition by Lynette Yadon-Boachi. Oh, lucky you. Uh, kind of retrospective. Well, it was a retrospective. It's a new work by her, but also work going back to 2003, 2004. So it's a really interesting show. And the reason I, I wanted to take a picture by her and put it on my wall, it's a picture called A Passion Like No Other. She's a black artist and it shows a black face um, against a green background, but rock still, I mean, absolutely still, just looking out at us through these piercing eyes. And they're just these little hints of what this figure could be. is the remnants of a kind of ruff around the neck of the kind they used to wear in the 17th century. Um, and a sort of black outfit underneath. And it, it, it's got a timelessness to it. You don't know who this is. You don't know if it's a portrait or what. It's a little bit like that Votto picture we had of the Piero, just this rather sad frontal figure. But what's wonderful about it, and it's, this is something that happens all the way through the show, by the way, is this incredibly interesting and brave attempt to paint blackness to paint black faces and I mean that in a really technical fashion there are the demands of painting black skin are very different from the demands of painting white skin and all the way through the show you see her battling really interestingly with these technical demands and so much art these days by black artists is about identity and about these sort of political concerns. Although this, of course, has that going through it. How could it not have? It's also very much about the technical complications. And if you look at the people that she likes, the people that she admires as painters, they're people like John Singer Sargent or Degas. They're figures who painted with these wonderful flashing brushstrokes who somehow inspire her to be as good as they are or better than they are. But instead of painting middle-aged white blokes like me and you, painting young attractive gorgeous black people so it's a it's just an interesting personal quest and this picture is just gorgeous i love it such a knockout picture don't you think yes absolutely love it i thought it was very captivating i could look at it for a very long time and i hope very much to be able to go and see that exhibition if the world is back to normal and the show is still on i'd love to seek it out it reminded me actually there's a sort of touch of velasquez about it yeah was... i mean what's great about her is and, and she was absolutely pioneering in this is that she was basically doing painting at a time when everybody else was making mm. videos and electric installations and all that kind of stuff. It's often so wearing and delivers so little in the way of joy. She was painting away and getting better and better and better at the old-fashioned business of oil on canvas, and yet not in any way being old-fashioned because her range of subjects are brand new. 
she introduces all this entire black cast in her art. I've never had this much attention devoted to it before. Yeah. And then these amazing technical battles going on on how to paint darker flesh and how to set it against different colors. And what I love about them in the end is that, I don't know, they're somehow, they're not loaded with obvious political issues. They're loaded with brilliant pictorial issues. How to make this picture work, how to make it poetic, how to make it beautiful, mm. are the, the things that seem to concern her most. And the result is a very, very haunting body of work, which I yeah. thoroughly recommend and I think everybody should go and see. Well, I, th I find it very heartening, actually, because, you know, old-fashioned stick-in-the-mud people like me, who love uh, traditional figurative painting, I worry about how that fits into the modern world with um, modern subjects and, and various diverse artists uh, experimenting with it. Uh, and I fear that it, it might die a death because it's so, especially in the Western world, traditionally seen as the exclusive uh, domain of, of white old blokes, isn't it? And that's, that's not always a fair characterization, but that's where we are. And this exhibition shows us the, the way ahead. This is the next chapter. This is it, isn't it? Well, it is. And this is something I've been banging on about for a while, because one of the things I think we all learned from the lockdown, more perhaps from the last one than this one, this one's been a bit freer, but the last one, it really forced us in on ourselves. And loads of people turned to art, didn't they? We talked about this on the, on the podcast. It's as if they couldn't help themselves, as if they were once again in touch with just this very basic, deep, historic need to draw things, make mm. things. And that that is the sort of raw material out of which great art has always been made, I think, this very basic human need to communicate through imagery. And what's wonderful about the new generation of black artists is that a lot of them are telling stories, painting pictures, being true to that urge that we all have to express ourselves pictorially. It's almost as if they're teaching the decadent modern art world how it should be going about things and what is there to be found if you if you go back and be true to art in the right way. So it's all really encouraging. It's a good time for people like me and you, Bendy, those of us who have, you know, lingering fondness for the old ways of making art. We're being treated to a very pleasurable, very important time by artists like Lynette uh, Yadon Boachi and, and many others. So, yeah, for me, it's all optimistic. Good times. Good. On what a cheery and optimistic note in which to end, I think. Well, it's bye-bye from me. And cheerio from me. <laughs> Woody and Bendy!